Okay, how is it? Delicious, right? Crosstown Student Ministries, let's give it up for them. Yeah, they're having fun. Let me encourage you, if you've got a junior high or high school student, they do these games once a month. It's coming up January 4th. They have teams, t-shirts, and it's a big competition thing that they do, and it's really a lot of fun. We invite you to invite your student to join us. This coming Sunday, we'll be starting off a new series called C, and we'll be looking at the story of Christmas and begin to look at some of the elements and really put our eyes on it and find out what it is that God is trying to communicate in the Christmas story. So we're 25 days into thankfulness, and we've been working our way up to, to uh, Thanksgiving, and I don't know about you, but I, I just love Thanksgiving. It's, it's like the real purest holiday that we have in America, that and Memorial Day. I mean, these are like sacred days. But, but Thanksgiving's a really important time because me and my wife, I'm a turkey leg guy. I don't know, we all have a special part of that turkey that we like. I'm a leg guy, so we have a special turkey that has three legs flown in from Pennsylvania. Uh, there's a farm in Pennsylvania that raises three-legged turkeys, and you don't believe me. Oh, I, I will have pictures. I, I think John Madden had one of those one time in the, with the NFL, but we love Thanksgiving, and we're hoping that you're going to have a great one too. But we've been on this 25 days of thankfulness, and, and what, what has God been trying to do with us? He's, he's trying to help us look at how life happens, how to view the circumstances of life, to um, really to uh, cultivate thankfulness. Um, we've learned about it, cultivating thankfulness through prayer through the healing of our perspective, that our perspective is like a broken finger sometimes. We look at the world and it's broken and the way that we see the world, everything that we touch hurts because our perspective is broken. We learn that and we ask God to begin to work in our lives as we participate with purpose in other people's lives, that that helps create thankfulness in you. When you begin to pour into other people's situation instead of our own, and then last week, we talked about developing this thankful heart through praise and, and giving God glory for what he's already done in our lives. So today, we're going to take our final step towards a thankful thanksgiving by returning to the hope of the promises of God. A lot of times, we get stuck in the middle of life, and I think it happens to all of us. You might not be there right now, but I think there are times when we get there and we, we lose that sense of hope. We're not really sure how things are going to work out. We um, get to that place of hopelessness, and if you've been there, and I have been there multiple times in my life, it's a really hard place to be thankful from. I mean, when you don't see how this is going to get fixed, or how it's going to get worked out, or how it's going to be solved in your life, no matter what it is, it is really hard to approach Thanksgiving or any day and, and have any kind of thankfulness in your life. But I think God wants to help us get through that. I think he wants to help each and every one of us today to kind of get over the hump of, of looking at the world around us, that hopelessness, and kind of get back to bringing thankfulness into us by giving us some new hope, connecting us with hope again. So in the scriptures, one of the most popular stories that you'll find, and you're probably familiar with it, is a group of people that are living without hope. They are a million Israelites are living under the tyranny and the slavery of Pharaoh. 
And a million of these people are there and, and their lives are just not working out the way that they thought they'd work out. I think because we're modern people, we're kind of detached from that story. I think we see them as a group. You know, the children of, uh, of Israel or the Jewish people, we may just kind of collectively put them together. But I don't think we see them as individuals. I don't think we see them as people who are, who are 30 or maybe 75 or has spent their life and the dreams and thoughts that they may have had about what life should be like. I don't think we normally connect with the emotional uh, trauma, the hopelessness that these people were feeling. Now, Somebody may look at your life, and, and please excuse this expression, but somebody may look at your life and, and say, y- your life sucks, okay? I mean, they may, they may look at you and say, wow, man, it, 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 it sucks to be you, right? I, even just hearing your story, it's, and, and when I've told my story to people, sometimes they're like, dang, man, I can't believe you've been through that or you're walking through that. But you know when life is really hard is when God tells you, your, your life really, really, really sucks. And you know, I mean, it's like you're, you're really in a bad place. And that's exactly the situation that these people found themselves. In Exodus 3, verses 7 through 10, God says this. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. I mean, it's like, I, I, I know what's going on down there. I'm watching. Their lives are miserable. I've heard the, the torment of their hearts, that these were people who had dreams. These were people who had heard promises. They'd even heard promises from God. Um, These were people who needed hope. These were people that may be like some of us here today, that just are kind of like in a place where, you know, it's hard. And and, and it's hard to even be us in the middle of the life that we're living. So Moses' life becomes a microcosm of Israel. Again, we try to glorify Moses into some giant character who stands apart from suffering, who stands apart from all the other stuff that these people are going through. And we do that with people who are bigger than life. We think that they don't go through stuff. We, we don't think pastors cuss. We don't think they get angry in traffic. They don't, we don't think they have problems with what they watch on TV. And, and Moses is no different Moses is kind of like a little microcosm of what's going on inside the heart of all the Israelites. He was rescued from the Nile and raised in the courts of Egypt. Sounds like a pretty good start for him. And at some point, he connects himself with his Jewish heritage, and he realizes he's a, he is part of the, the nation of, of Israel. Um, so much so that when he's out one day, he's walking around, and he sees an injustice taking place. And he sees an Egyptian uh, beating up a Jewish fella. And so, since it's like, this isn't supposed to go on, this is injustice, it's not supposed to, injustice is not supposed to happen in God's world, or injustice is not supposed to happen to God's people, so he decides to kill the Egyptian, and then he buries his body in the sand. And he thinks, this is how it's going to roll my life is going good. I can speak three languages. Um, I'm trained in the courts uh, of Egypt. I mean, I've got a, a life that's going to be great. 
I mean, we're told as a child that he was saved from the Nile because he was beautiful. I mean, can you, what kind of start is that? I mean, you're born beautiful, you're, a, you're adopted into royalty, you're trained in all the languages and all the skill and the wisdom of the, of, of the most, the, the highest nation at the time. And then he's like, man, this is going to be great, and here's an injustice over here. I'm going to respond to that injustice, and God's going to make me great, and, and awesome things are going to happen. So Moses thought the deliverance of God was going to come through him. But like us, and I really mean like us, his life did not unfold like the commercial told you it thought was, it was going to unfold. It, you know, his life didn't unfold the way that the seminar that he went to, that told him if he did five different things and if he modified this about his behavior, that he would take this path towards success. I will even dare to say this. His life and our lives didn't turn out the way the preachers have told us it would turn out. You know, I mean, seriously. Some of us have been told from pulpits like this one about this is how life is going to work out for you and this is how God's going to work out for you and, and this is what God wants in your life. You're going to be, you're going to be healthy and, and God's promised that he's going to make you wealthy and he's going to, you know, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't be m making fun. But, but we've all heard those things. All these promises that have been told to us from TV and from society and from the pulpit. In Acts 7.25, we're told, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't get it. He thought everybody would rally to him. Then Moses found out about the killing and put a death mark on Moses. If you don't know what a death mark is, let me return you to uh, a more recent history of Star Wars. It's what happens when Jabba the Hutt decides that Han Solo hasn't paid his debt. He puts a death mark on him. And as a result of it, they're, they're chasing Han Solo throughout the universe and the galaxy. And that's exactly what happens with Moses. Moses thinks he's going to deliver the people of God. The people of God don't respond to him. Pharaoh finds out, and now Moses is running for his life. Exodus 2.15, when, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Wow, life's not working out for Moses the way that Moses thought it would work out. For 40 years he lives in this land called Midian. For 40 years he becomes the shepherd hand of his father-in-law. So he's not even a shepherd to his own flock. He's working for his father-in-law. And, and his father-in-law is his boss. You know, he speaks three to five languages. He's skilled in all kinds of manner of skills. And here he is, he's pushing around somebody else's sheep. I mean, I think I could get value out of pushing my own sheep around. But to push around somebody else's sheep and walking behind them and and having to care for them. Probably not the life that Moses wanted. And I think many of us find us exactly in the same place. Uh, we find ourselves living in the land of Midian. And it's interesting that the, the land of Midian, the word Midian means the land of contention. Don't we all think life should be easier than this? 
Isn't our biggest argument against the existence of God is not whether or not he is scientifically inconsistent. That's not, our, our rub against God is not, is not scientific data. There's no scientific data against the existence of God. That atheistic argument has fallen to the side and, you know, with the Big Bang Theory and all that other stuff, I mean, it's, it's, there, there's no scientific evidence against the existence of God. But you know what? There is the evidence against the existence of God for people today. It's that life doesn't work out the way it, we think it should work out. It's the contentiousness of life. It's the earthquakes. It's the volcanoes. It's the tsunamis. It's, it's the job loss. It is the cancer. It is the fallen or failed marriage. It is the strife of life, the difficulty of life. We, we just don't expect it. We've been told through the commercial that if I drive this kind of car, it won't break. It comes with a 100,000-mile warranty. It's perfect. It'll run forever. We're, we're told that if we wear these kinds of clothes, I mean, I'm listening to beard commercials for men now. Oh, it's absolutely, I listen to ESPN radio and there's one commercial about, your beard defines you, and our product defines your beard. And I'm like, oh my goodness. We're now in a society that we're hoping if we grow a really cool beard, that it will define us. And I think most of us are finding out you can grow anything on your face. You could, I mean, you could cover your body with hair, but you're going to find out that there is nothing that relieves the contentiousness of life. I mean, we have our high points. We take our trips, our vacations. We, we make our money. We get our bonus, whatever it may be. We have high points. But, but then we come back to earth and we realize, okay, this is hard. I mean, it's difficult. And a lot of us live in this place of contention where life contends with us. Where the place where we contend with ourselves I mean, our, our self-loathing, our self-doubts. I mean, we just, our addictions, we just find ourselves in contention. And I know a lot of you have thought that there's something wrong with you because you are constantly dealing with this. I'm here to tell you the land of contention is the human experience. It's, it's what we do. We're born, we live, we strive, we toil, we work, we gather, we die. And in the middle of it, we try to find these reposit moments of, of, of pleasure. We've been told that we're a nation after the pursuit of happiness. Why did they say that? Of all the things to put in there, why not the pursuit of character? Why not the inalienable right to discover purpose? But we were kind of like, no, so you can find happiness. And if you, you don't have to be too old to find out that that pursuit just doesn't, it's, it's almost like a mirage. You grasp for it, you want to get it, and you, you have your moments. But then you, you're reminded at certain times that, man, this thing contends with me. Life contends with me. Moses found the disdain of this place called Midian so difficult that when he has his first son, we are told this in Exodus 2, verse 22. His wife gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. You're like, well, Moses, Egypt's not your land either. And that's what Moses is saying. As my soul just doesn't find rest anywhere. 
I mean, I'm just doing my nine to five. Well, probably in his case, it wasn't nine to five. It was probably more five to five to, you know, 11. I mean, it was, I mean, he's like, my life experience is, is that my soul wanders and it never finds rest. And a lot of us are in that exact same place. We're on our third marriage because we think in that marriage, my soul will find rest. You know, we're, we're taking our, you know, every time I, I get prescribed a medicine for my, my back injury, I'm kind of like, this is the medicine. This is the injection. Oh, if you put the injection right there, all my pain's going to go away. And for about two days, the injection feels good. And then I'll be like, man, this is good. It's going to be great. And then all of a sudden, a week later, I'm curled up in bed with a bag of ice on my back. Man, you think that medicine's going to do it. You think that job's going to do it. You know, we, we, we think that it's, it's going to displace all the disappointment or the contention of life. And Moses is like, man, I, my soul is just wandering. I know I'm not alone in my experience of contentious life. The struggle is real. I mean, why do you think marriages after three years begin to dissolve? Because all the fairy dust goes away. All that chemical stimulation of the, the pursuit, the hunt, the discovery, the joy, three years of bliss, and, and then about three years into it or seven years into it, all of a sudden you realize this person I, I said I was going to love, she's different. He is different. You all of a sudden find out they're just as contentious as everybody else on the planet. It's hard to deal with, to live with another human being, even if they're amazing. We, we, we go from one job place to another place. You go from one church to another church thinking, well, this church will be different because those people were hypocrites. Well, welcome to Crosstown. <laughs> we're not any different. We're all in journey. We're all, we're all you know, working with this life thing that, that is so contentious. And Moses found himself doing a job living a life where it was hard to find hope. He actually made the travel, and maybe for you it's the same, the journey from prince to detestable. You know, did you ever think you were going to be famous when you were a kid? I don't know, I don't know if you had the economy of that kind of dream growing up. I did, you know, growing, being born in the 50s and then growing up during the 60s and 70s. I, I was going to be an astronaut. I mean, it, it was, I was going to be an astronaut. I was going to be an Apollo guy. You know, I was going to go to the moon and, and then I was going to be, I, I was going to be a singer. And, and then I went to college. I was going to be an actor. I was going to be famous. And, and then I became a pastor and I was, I was going to be Joel Olstein. You know, I was going to be, I was going to have books and, and you know, a coliseum for a church and, and all of a sudden, but all of a sudden there's a point when, when all these prince ideas, these princess ideas that we are born with, that we were told by Disney and, and our parents, all of a sudden you find out about 30, maybe about 40 and really about 50 and definitely by 60 that, you know, this is, this is it. This is life. And Moses took the exact same journey. It's interesting, in his culture, he was considered detestable. Genesis 46, 31 says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. He was once a prince with the Egyptians, and now he's an abomination to the Egyptians. 
And I know some of you feel like you're right there. That the situation of your life, that you just are culturally dismissed. You're the wrong color. You don't have enough education. You've failed too many times. You've committed the wrong crime. You struggled with the wrong addiction. You're the wrong gender. Whatever it may be, but sometime in our lives we get to that point where we feel like these prince and princess ideas just deteriorate and we find ourselves walking through and now we find ourselves detestable even to our culture. Nobody wants to be us. Nobody wants to be like us. But that's not where God wanted the story to end. And that's not where God wants the story to end for you. When Moses was at his lowest place, God invites Moses to reconnect to the promises that Moses had forgotten. And I think a lot of us here have forgotten what, what Christ is all about, what Christianity is all about. I think we have forgotten the promises of God because we've gotten worn down. We've, we've been walking around in this land, this detestable, this contentious life this hard life, and we begin to lose our connection with the promises of God. Exodus 3.1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert. And we'll take a look at that in a second. And came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. I think it's interesting that it tells us his location. It doesn't tell us that he's in the desert. Wouldn't that have been enough? Why is it the, the writer of this tells us that he's in the back side of the desert, okay? I think it's really interesting. I think it was George Orwell that said, the thing that distinguishes the middle class is they, ha they hate the rich, but they have no compassion for the poor. They're just kind of like in the middle. And he finds himself in this place, the, the backside of the desert. I'm not really winning in anything. I'm not succeeding anywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just existing. The backside of the desert is the low place in life. It's where there, there is no pretense anymore. Nobody cares if you're pretty. Nobody cares where you went to high school. Nobody cares what you know or what you did up, how you did it up north. Nobody cares about any of the pretense of your life and it doesn't work anymore. It's a place where there's no glitter, there's no fame. It's the real and honest you. Have you ever been brought to the real and honest you before? That's where you find the land of contention the most. It's when it's just you, nobody else cares, and you're on the backside of the desert. And that's where God meets Moses. And that's where the hope is. This is where it begins to trickle back into our lives. It's because when we think we are at the most detestable place in our lives, God says, okay, 
This is a place where I can reconnect you to something bigger than yourself. And so God calls to Moses. And God wants to call to us if we're willing to turn and listen. Exodus 3, verse 3. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that, that, that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Man, how long has it been since Moses has heard somebody call his, his name? Day after day, all he hears is the bleeping of sheep. And finally with a sense of authority, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose. He hears his name spoken, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. See, God reconnects Moses to himself. Then God connects Moses to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, that's going to be the big takeaway today. It's because you're asking God today to connect you to something. And that connection may be the pursuit of, through your pursuit of happiness. That we're all wanting to be happy. We're all wanting to get out of this contentious land of Midian. But we want to be connected to something. But today God wants to ask you, what do you want to be connected to? Because here's how it works. You first connect with me, then I connect you to the promises. Most of us are just like, I I want to read that book about where I get connected to the promises of God. Show me a prayer that I can pray that, that, that will give me the blessings. Show me the five things I need to do that I can, and I can get promised. And God's like, no, we got to have a moment where we speak each other's name to each other. Where you allow me to speak into your life when you turn aside to see what I want to do. And then I will connect you to the promises that I have for you. And God does do that with Moses. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of the people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up, to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and all the otherites that were in in the land. See, God first connects Moses to him, and then God connects him to the promise and this idea of the promise. Can I, can I warn you about the promised land idea? I was looking at this, and, and um, it's an interesting concept, and, and I'm still thinking it through, so, so please don't you know, walk out of here and tweet something evil about me. Um, but uh, God wanted that to bring them to a place where they would be fulfilled, But it's interesting that not even the promised land will do that for them unless they rest in the promise of God himself. You know, 
You think that they're like, oh, wow, where's he going to take us? He's going to take us to the promised land. That's where we need to go. And sermons all across this country preach the promised land, the promised land, where God wants you to be and how your life is going to be happy and how he wants you to have this and all this other stuff. But it's interesting. God takes them to the promised land, and guess what happens? They lose it. Why? Because as long as the contention is still inside you with God and the world around you, you won't keep any land God takes you to. You know, oh man, if God would just give me a prettier wife. Well, let me, let me get socially relevant. If, if, if white males were no longer in charge and we could put, let's, let me just throw polarization in here, we'll put black females in charge. Get white males out of charge. America will be better. That's the land we need to be in. Or maybe I need to be in a land where I can fluidly move through my gender. And I can be this today and I can be something else tomorrow. And if I have this fluidity, maybe that's the land we can be in. Maybe if the rich, we take everything from the rich and we give it to the poor, then we'll be in the land that we're supposed to be in. And then everything will be fine and we won't have any contention any longer. Let me just say, we can make the male female, the female male, the white black and the black white. We can do whatever. But I'll tell you what, we still won't keep the land. Unless we first connect to God first. Unless God is the promised land, then any land we find ourselves in, we'll lose. That second marriage, yeah. That third marriage, right. That new job, uh-huh. That neighborhood, yep. That new president, uh-huh. It won't work. God brought them into the promised land, but they couldn't keep it. Guess what they found in the promised land? Contention, compromise, wars, fights. Contention still happens when surrounded with milk and honey and you own everyone else's stuff. It, 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 here's the part about the promised land. It's interesting. The promised land appeals to the most base nature of humanity. I'm thinking about it. It's like, how did he come up with this formula? You know, it's like, I will give you a land where it's flowing with milk and honey. You don't have to do this. You don't have to fight any bees. It's just going to flow. Why? Because we don't want to work. We want to come from the taskmaster and somebody else being our boss to where we want to be financially independent, where we don't need anybody and we can just retire at 40 and we don't have to work for anybody. And God says, okay, I will, I will appeal to that in you. And they're like, oh yes, take us to that land. I don't have to work. And then here's the other place, uh, the basic contention of humanity, base nature of humanity, jealousy. I will give you the land of the Hittites. Now, isn't it funny? It's enough to get our own land, but isn't it even better when you get theirs? You know, I want the car he's driving. I want to live in a house that they live in. I want the view that they have. And God says, I'll take you into a land where your most base desires will be fulfilled. And we think that if, if we just get the right job, we get the right pay, we get the right president, we get the right whatever it is, if we don't even have to work and everything's going to work out, will be fine. And Israel shows us, no, 
contention still travels with this group of people. There is no land of personal happiness that God can bring you to that you will keep. There's nothing. When your heart is not at rest with God, no land will bring you rest. No job, no amount of money, no man or woman, no social upheaval will bring you at rest unless you are in relationship with God. The promised land is only as good as your relationship with God. Otherwise, it all spoils. It all spoils. And Israel was written into the text Why? As an example to tell us, hey guys, I can take you out of the injustice of America and I can make a new America where there's no injustice and if you still don't have me, guess what's going to happen? You'll still lose the land. The promised land didn't do it for Israel. Better food was not good enough. Better housing was not good enough. Not good enough to satisfy the pursuit of happiness. The only ground that will satisfy you will be the ground of relationship with God. And I've come to learn, know five promises, and I just, I'll just throw these out there real quick to you. Because I, you know, God has taken me on a new journey over this last year where I have had to look at the realities of my own personal life. And it hasn't worked out the way that I thought it was going to work out. And like I said, I had a prince dream of my life. And now where I am, it's, 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 it's a little bit different. And so God has been really challenging me. He's like, well, Paul, what would make you happy? What would do it for you? A book contract? What would it, somebody inviting you to speak at another church? What would, maybe 400 more people. Would I then feel good about myself? What will do it? And God has taken me to a place to discover five promises that are now my promised land. And here they are real quick. The first one is, I will be your God and you will be my people. Belonging to someone who loves you is the most powerful thing to rid your life of contentiousness. I belong to God. And that's a ground I could never lose. The second one is this. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Whether you're on the backside of the desert or whether you're standing in a land where milk and honey just flows, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The third one is this. I will complete a good work in you. As it says in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete that work, that he will continue to do that work, and that whatever's going on inside of me, no matter how difficult and contentious the Midian life is, that God's saying, I'm doing something good in you. Your heart is the ground that, where milk and honey flow. Your ground is where you experience rest. Your, your heart is where you experience rest. That's where I'm doing that work. The fourth one is, I will give you what is mine. Paul said in Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to his 
riches of glory in Christ Jesus that God will give us, if he's given us his son, that he will freely give us all the things that we need. I can rest in that land. I can't rest in the Republican Party. I can't rest in the Democrat Party. I can't, I can't rest in being white. I can't rest in being a baby boomer. You know, I can't rest in that. There's no hope for my soul in any of those things. But I have hope that God will give me all the things that I need in my life as my heart rests in the promised land of him. And then the last one is this, that God says, I go to prepare a place for you. John, God, uh, Christ said in John 14, in my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have... Uh, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. In my kingdom, you will experience rest, not only in heaven, but as I walk in the kingdom of God today. It is in the kingdom of God that we're no longer called Gershom, wanderer. It's only in God that we finally come to a city whose maker and builder was God. It is the peace with God that, that enables us to own the land that we live in and to overcome the contentiousness of the struggle of life. And these promises are the promised land. This is it. These are the, the promises that will satisfy you in the backside of the desert. So I don't know why you came today. I'm going to guess God drew you here. Maybe you say, well, no, that's not exactly happening. My wife brought me here. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to bet that in the middle of this, at some point, whether you like this church or not, at some point of this, it, it touched you. I mean, you were found in the middle of this. And if, if, if you're not living a life of contention, guess what? You're not trying. Really. I mean, but life is contentious. It is a struggle. It is hard. And God wants to meet every single one of us. And, and we're like, well, if, if, if God is good, then, you know, he'll give me a new car. If God's good, he'll give me this job that I want. If God's good, God says, no, if I'm good, I'll give you what's best. I'll give you me. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'm, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll complete a good work in you. I'll give you what's mine. I'll even prepare a place for you and invite you into my kingdom. Or is milk and honey still what you're after? Is owning your neighbor's stuff still what drives your soul? When we can rest in God, we can own any land. We can live in poverty. We can live in injustice. We can live in wealth. We can live in education. We can live without education. We can live anywhere and experience the promise of God where we are. We can live white and black, gender confused, male or female, whatever it is. We can experience peace in our lives as we connect with the promises of God, the true promised land. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we invite you into this final moment to connect with God.
I invite you, don't come up for the stuff. Don't come up, you know, for the job prayer. Don't come up for the MRI prayer. And I know we all have MRIs and we all have challenges. But can I ask you to do what needs to be done first? Hear God call your name through the communion, through the bread and the cup, that God is calling your name and he wants to connect with you. And then in the connecting with God through Christ, let the stuff flow into your life because he wants to bring you into a good land. Let him first heal the contention in your heart. Father, as we enter into this moment on the backside of the desert, Lord God, we enter into this place. A people of Gershom are here today. We've been wandering and trying to find purpose and meaning, success and value. And today, Lord God, we look for a city whose maker and builder is God. And what we find is Christ. We find hope in Christ. We find hope in you. You are the ground of promise. And you are the promise that makes us live with hope on any ground. Lord God, today as you call my name, I turn aside to you.